0: For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. Let's pray this morning. Father, it is not by might. It is not by power. But it is by your Spirit. That is what you said, Lord. And so we ask you this morning, breathe on us again. And everyone said, you may be seated. All right, it's the first Sunday in October, so I thought in light of that, I would talk about zombies. Yay! (laughs) Aren't you glad you came this morning? Because this message is going to be a thriller. (laughs) Thriller now. Anyone remember that old 1968 black and white zombie flick, Night of the Living Dead? You Remember that? Well, zombies are back in a big way with a TV show called The Walking Dead. Maybe you've heard about it. Basically, this TV show, The Walking Dead, it's a post-apocalyptic TV series where a group of survivors fight to stay alive in a world where the dead walk. But really, the main story is the dynamics between those who are trying to stay alive, and not just stay alive, but stay alive while keeping their humanity. And this super violent TV show is the number one most watched show on cable. Nothing else on TV even comes close to it. Listen, and here's a big disclaimer here this morning. I am not endorsing a post-apocalyptic graphic show depicting cannibalism and dismemberment, all right? So please don't go home and watch it and tell your family that I told you that watching it would bring you closer to Jesus. Please don't let your kids, please don't let your kids watch that show. And don't substitute your Bible study right? With like marathon Walking Dead TV show marathons, right? So what I am saying here is that our culture is eating this stuff up. Get it? (laughs) I kill me. All right. I think there's a reason for this. People sense that there's a struggle going on. People feel desperate and they see our country breaking away from law and order, and with worldwide corruption and chaos, there's a sense of hopelessness and a loss of control. What most people don't know is the reason that they're fascinated with zombies isn't the violence, it's not the blood and the guts, but because in the spirit, this is what is happening to them. It's what's happening to all of us. Now maybe I should explain something here this morning that that probably has never been talked about here and it's very important. What is a zombie? All right? A zombie is a fictional undead being created through a reanimation of a of a corpse, all right? Is everyone writing this down cuz it's really important. <laughs> Basically, it's someone who was alive, got infected with a zombie virus, died, and the virus brought them back to, well, not really life, but animation. So they kind of shuffle around and they eat, but they're dead. A zombie is a mindless, lifeless body that exists only to feed on flesh. Now, in, in the Bible, perhaps you've come across this word carnal. That word carnal is the same root word for carnivore or flesh eater. Which brings me to my first point, which is, you are infected. Happy Sunday! (laughs) Aren't you so glad you came this morning so that I could tell you that you are dying? They don't know they're dead. The error here in making a spiritual analogy about zombies is to only think of those who are lost. They haven't surrendered their sin. They haven't become Jesus followers, right? And the Bible talks a lot about being dead versus being alive. Romans chapter 6, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So literally, when we're going to work, when we're driving on the highway, when we're out grocery shopping, we see dead people. They're not alive in Christ. The danger here, though, is thinking only people who aren't serving Christ are the ones who are dead. We think, you know, it's us versus them. They are the zombies. But you see, here in Galatians, Paul isn't writing to the lost. He's writing us, the church. He says, the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. We often, you know, we think of the law as the Old Testament, the law of Moses detailed in Exodus and Leviticus. And the opening sentence here shows us the law revealed through Moses and the grace and truth revealed through Jesus, the Son of God, are from one Lord and reveal his same intent. There's a heresy that the law and the entire Old Testament were nullified by Jesus and the Apostle Paul. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Paul is in agreement with Jesus in loving others as ourselves. We fulfill the law because love inspires the greatest good, And what the law does achieve is justice and judgment of all that is not loving and holy, which sounds awesome, until you realize how much of you is unloving and unholy. You see, we're all pre-wired by God to appreciate justice, right? That's why we love it at the end of our movies and our TV shows or your favorite books, where the good guys win and the bad guys lose, right, where the guy gets the girl. But our fallen, carnal nature, twisted by pride, corrupts that to a place where we lose sight of the greater miracles of God's love and His mercy. And we rail against the sins of others, but what about ours? Do we turn the mirror to our own laziness and greed and pride and emotional eating or gossip, You want to know what justice looks like for you? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus suffering there. He took everything that my sins deserved. You see, justice would have been that I was nailed to that cross. But he took that and he bore God's wrath and justice in my place. And in exchange, he gave me a greater miracle of God's mercy. Paul warns about biting and devouring each other. He's talking to us, how we're treating each other. And he even says, by doing that, we're destroying each other. And before you realize it, you verbally knocked someone down. You gossiped about them and you're trying to make yourself look better. You are devouring them. How many of you know it's possible to be completely right and completely wrong at the same time? Your critiques and criticisms of others, they might be spot on, but because you don't love, because you aren't helping or exhorting or that brother or sister from a desire to help, you verbally cannibalize them and you devour their character and leave gaping, infected wounds. Paul is saying, you are the zombies. When you tear others down, when your appetites control you, when you mindlessly feed on carnal things, you're not alive. Oh, it's quiet in church this morning. Okay, Romans chapter 6. Here it says, zombies are slaves. Listen to this. Do not let sin control the way you live do not give in to sinful desires. Romans chapter 8, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Without the Holy Spirit, our natural tendencies enslave us. We're infected. Our default programming is sinful. Zombies are only capable of doing what their instincts, their appetites tell them to do. In Romans chapter 8, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. And that's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Paul is saying, zombies gone do what zombies gonna do. <laughs> but those who are truly alive have choices that they can make. They aren't mindless slaves controlled by appetites. And this is true for those who belong to Jesus in Romans chapter 8. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living in you. So this is not a game. This is literally life and death, and it is affecting us all. Some who have been Christians their entire life still have a wrong perspective that the people outside the church, they're the zombies, and that we hole up in here and try not to get infected by the sinners out there. Paul destroys that idea here in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Jesus' people have a choice, and that's good news this morning. He says, if you choose to answer the impulses, the dark cravings and desire of your sinful nature you will zombify. Conversely, you can choose to access the power of the Holy Spirit and kill the parts of your nature that are still living as an enemy to God. He's talking to us. The real conflict here is not external. It's internal. You've been incepted. It's a war within a war. We are fighting the zombie within. The Holy Spirit inside of us is always at war with the sinful nature, the appetite for things that do not please the heart of God. Now understand me. When you submitted to Christ and you repented of your sins and you said yes to Jesus, your sins were forgiven. Can I get an amen this morning? Isn't that good news? But your sinful nature didn't just vanish in a puff of smoke. Romans chapter 7 he says and i know nothing good lives in me that is my sinful nature i want to do what's right i can't i want to do what's good i don't i don't want to do what's wrong i do it anyway look at your neighbor and say the struggle is real <laughs> paul struggled with it the great apostle paul struggled with this jesus knows this and he offers us hope hebrews chapter 4 says we have one speaking of jesus who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus was the ultimate zombie slayer, which kind of sounds like a cool comic book. (laughs) Jesus, zombie slayer. I think I would totally buy that. Can Can we stop trying to pretend that there isn't a struggle going on in every single one of us? You're infected. I'm infected. We're all born infected with this ever-present, ever-controlling nature to do what is in our self-interest instead of living according to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The question is, how do you tell what side's winning? Now, if I brought a zombie up here on the stage and, you know, and I had pastor come stand on the other side of the stage and I asked you, which one is not the zombie? I think 100% of you would identify pastor because you know we don't have rotten flesh hanging off of us. So it's a little more subtle here, right? How do we tell? Some people, you know, they look like they have it all together, right? We come to church, we got all the right clothes on, we're doing the right things, we know what to say, but inside is dead. And let's be real, we've all been there going through the routine kind of going through the motions, saying amen at the right time in the sermon, but there's areas of our life where that sin nature is not being killed. So how can you tell the parts of you that are controlled by the sin zombie? Well, zombies can be identified in three primary ways, and I sincerely hope you're writing these down because, you know, the the Z apocalypse isn't coming, it's already here. You can tell a zombie by behavior, by their walk, and by their appetite. Now, for the sake of time this morning, I I just want to unpack appetite because that's what Paul is focusing here in Galatians. The church in Galatia had an appetite for tearing each other apart with their words. Is there a place in your life where you know it isn't good what you're feeding on, but you find yourself saying, I can't... I can't help it. It's just, it's who I am. Listen, any time you find yourself saying those phrases to someone else or to yourself, danger, there's a zombie. Now, because part of you is right, you can't help it. It is who you are, but it isn't who the Holy Spirit is, who lives in you. And guess what? He can help you overcome it. His power is greater than the magnetism of sin. If you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, then you have an appetite for Him. You crave Him. And if you imagine your spirit you know, operating like your body, you find when you take in more of the spirit and you spend more time with Him, your appetite for His presence grows and now to feel satisfied, you want more, and you want more. And how many of you can say over the years of your relationship with Jesus, you need and you desire more of him today than you ever have before? Remember, do you remember your zombie existence before you met Jesus? Constantly feeding but never feeling satisfied? Oh, oh yeah, there were moments when you were full because you got the high, or you got the money, or you got the sexual gratification, or you got the attention that you were seeking, but whatever. But then you were empty again, and you had to do more to get that same feeling until you were controlled and your life enslaved by insatiable desire, But Jesus offers true and lasting satisfaction. And this is what he tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Is every area of our life affected because we have an insatiable appetite for the presence of the Holy Spirit? Is our spiritual stomach rumbling during the day because we want more of Him? Or are other desires drawing us? You know, it's easy to say, well, you know, sexual sin's wrong, stealing is wrong, murder is wrong, and, you know, I don't have an appetite for those things. But You know, what we need to ask about our appetites is, is this something that I want or am I hungering after what Jesus wants? You see, we all have a tendency to see the circumstances of our lives and the actions of others through through this lens. How does this benefit me? Or how does this negatively impact me? As if the things that happen to my benefit or detriment, are somehow the real standard of whether something is good or evil. This is zombie mentality in its raw form, with me at the center of the universe, with my desires at the steering wheel, as if I were the decider of what is good and what is evil. Guess again, God alone is the decider of what is good and what is evil, and his determination may or may not have anything to do with whether something directly and immediately benefits me or not. It may in fact seem very, very bad, but actually be good in God's eyes. It may seem like an extraordinary stroke of fortune, but God may see it as a death trap for me. What hurts me or makes me happy, is not equivalent to God's definition of good and evil. And everybody said, when we are sick, one of the first symptoms is a loss of appetite, right? We don't want food, can't stand the smell. When the zombie is taking over, we lose our appetite for God's presence and his word. Conversely, one of the signs that we're recovering from sickness, (laughs) we're hungry, we want to eat. A grandfather was talking to his grandson, and he said, he was trying to explain this idea. He said, um, there's two wolves inside of you, and they're always at war with each other. One of them is the good wolf. It represents kindness and bravery and love, and the other one is the bad wolf. It represents greed and hate and fear, and the grandson's eyes got big. He said, Grandpa, which one wins? And The grandfather replied, the one you feed. So if you don't hear one other thing that I say this morning, hear this, the way to kill the zombie within is not simply to starve the zombie, it's to feed the spirit. You see, we we like to write all the lists of the things that we shouldn't do, you know, and if I asked you, what in your life would you like to stop doing, stop doing right now? I think we could all come up with some stuff, you know, on that list, right? Okay, somebody honest over here. You and me were the only sinners here this morning, so. All right. You actually cannot starve a zombie. They are undead, right? It's not about what you're starving as much as it's about what you're feeding on. And when we focus on the things that we shouldn't do, we're not putting our energy into the solution. And this is not about having enough willpower or discipline to stop your sinful behavior. It's about taking in more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, letting him fill every area of our lives. Because you see, God cannot coexist with sin. And when we fill our lives with his spirit, his truth, and when we connect with him, a supernatural byproduct of that is eternal life. Jesus said in John 16, in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, The advocate won't come. If I do go away, I will send him to you. Okay, so let's begin with Jesus' statement that it's better for us that he left so that the Holy Spirit could come. Really? I mean, wouldn't it be arguably better if Jesus had stayed and declared himself to the world as Lord and Messiah, and we could just see him and talk to him, and he could put to rest all of the endless debates and squabbles and problems? No. If he had stayed in a world where the Holy Spirit never came as he is here now, then in order to have that audience with Jesus and get his input, well, you'd have a long, long waiting line. Let's just, let's just take the number 2 billion, the current number of Christians in the world, Right? not even include all the Christians that have ever lived till now, just the current 2 billion. And let's say that you would like to meet with King Jesus for his personal input on something. Okay, first you take a number. (laughs) And then let's say that in addition to governing the world, King Jesus sets aside time for one-on-one appointments with 20 people a day. Now, just rudimentary math says you're going to be waiting for 100 million days or or over 200,000 years. Are you starting to get it now? By sending the Holy Spirit, God can have a real-time two-way connection and conversation with every single one of us simultaneously. And this is profoundly more efficient. This begs another question. If life in the Spirit, having an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, is central to Jesus' plan for my life, shouldn't it also be central to my plan for my life? Hmm. His name is key to understanding the relationship. If the Holy Spirit's first name is holy, then it makes sense that my contribution to the relationship has to do with personal holiness. God is all-powerful. He never commanded us to get all power. God's omnipresent. He never commanded us to be everywhere all the time. God is omniscient. He never commanded us to know everything, but God is holy. And he did say, I want you to be holy because I am holy. First John chapter three, all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. So what is holiness? It's conforming our lives to the will of God. And to do that means rejecting the parts of our lives that are not living according to his plan. You see, I'm married to Kirsten, and I have a marriage license. Now, if I were to go out and have an affair or just spend all my time doing whatever I want with whoever I want, now I could come back home with that piece of paper and say, here's the marriage license. See, we're married. But when we have a healthy marriage, year after year, I'm learning more about her. I learn ways to show her that I love her. It's through the relationship of love that all the good behaviors grow out of. Your relationship with Jesus is not going to get magically better when you show up in heaven. What are you making out of it right now? Holiness was never intended to consist solely of lists of rules. Your mind and your willpower cannot achieve holiness without your heart being engaged in the process. Your spouse did not fall madly in love with your intellect, (laughs) am I right? You were not out on a date discussing quantum physics and dark matter, and your spouse was like, they're the one. No, that is not what happened. Your spouse fell in love with your heart, right? Your heart, your passionate love for your wife is what makes your marriage a good thing. It's what makes you a good husband. And yes, with your mind, you think of ways that you can earn money to support and take care of your family. Yes, with your mind, you plan ways to provide stability and security. But all of those thoughts and actions are driven by what? Your heart. What or who you love is central to every decision you will ever make. That's why in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Love because that is where everything comes from personal holiness, the way you speak, the choices you make, these evaluated honestly will tell you whether or not your first love with the Lord has grown cold and stale. Do you think of the Holy Spirit as a theological idea or as a person that is here present with you at all times? Is your heart tender toward him and eager to please him? Jeremiah chapter 29, God tells us, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Yes, God made us with an intellect and a desire to learn, but let's face it, our minds are corrupted. You know, they often trick us. Our minds make false assumptions, and they often do. And that's why we're commanded to actively put on the mind of Christ. We're commanded to arrest thoughts that are contrary to our relationship to God, to kill a zombie you have to strike it where? Hey, somebody watched a zombie movie. All right. You have to to, to strike it or shoot it in the brain. So we must take inventory of our thoughts and kill the ones that do not conform to the spirit of God. But the desire, the impetus to, to make that deadly blow, it begins in the heart our passion for Jesus, it must be kept flaming hot because that is what will yield a genuine, exciting, deep life and relationship in the Spirit rather than you just kind of white-knuckling a dead, dry, loveless commitment. Do you know people who stay married for the kids? But they are, they're living in a loveless marriage at home. This is the opposite of walking in the Spirit. God wants to sow satisfy you with the power of his love through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that you see right through those temptations that used to control you. And now you see them for what they really are, rotten, stinking, zombie flesh. And every time we reject what our flesh wants to do and make decisions and behave according to what he wants, more of his life flows through us, destroying that zombie virus. He's the cure and he's ours, but we have a responsibility. You see, we have to share the cure, don't we? We have to see the Muslims and the Hindus and the Sikhs and everyone in our community as Jesus sees them precious, loved by God, in need of the same truth and and freedom that saved us. I was watching a lecture on altruism. It was given by Abigail Marsh. She's the professor of psychology at Georgetown University. She started out her, her um, speech talking about an accident she had when she was 19 years old. She said, I was driving on a highway, four-lane highway, and uh, a dog ran out. And I did exactly what you're not supposed to do. I swerved. My car spun out of control several times. And I was in a horrible accident, and I was actually now facing oncoming traffic. And a complete stranger, a man, ran across four lanes of highway traffic to come and save my life. She said, I I, I don't know who he was. I don't know why he did that. He didn't know me. She said, I I never got his name, and I'm sure I was much too frightened to tell him thank you. So before I begin my talk, if you're out there, thank you. And she gave this talk. She said, my whole professional career has been focused on this one, answering this one question that I've been obsessed with ever since that moment. Why do people do things like that for complete strangers? Why do people donate a kidney to someone they don't even know? Why would this man run across four lanes of traffic? It was an amazing talk that she gave, and her research really kind of boils down to one word, humility. We could transform our entire community with that one word. Philippians chapter 2. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest. See, there's that zombie. Take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God has elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him a name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We were dead, but Jesus has made us alive. Can you say amen to that? Humility means we know, we know what we used to be. Humility admits, yeah, there's a struggle between what I want to do and what God wants me to do. Yep. When we remember we're still fighting the zombie within, we're able to reach others and speak to others with a humility that honors the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm a way. He didn't say, I'm a truth. He didn't say, I'm a kind of life. No, he didn't acknowledge that there was any other way, no other truth, and there is no other life. Living apart from Jesus, that's not living at all. Let me say it this way. Our solar system has nine planets in it, right? They all orbit the sun. Which one would you choose to live on? Only one planet out of them all is capable of supporting life. And it's not just capable. Our planet is crammed with all kinds of life, from the highest places in the atmosphere to the deepest depths of the ocean. Abundant life is here. You see, we live in a society that values treating all religions equally under the law, right? But equal under the law does not mean that all religions are equivalent. They are not equivalent. They are not the same. Any more than Mercury and Jupiter are the same as planet Earth because we all happen to be planets around the same sun. Jesus didn't say, I've got a cool new way to do life. You really ought to try it out. Jesus said, I am life. Everything not a part of me is death. You running your life apart from Jesus results in the zombie virus taking over. Putting anyone or anything else in charge of your life is the same result. But Jesus gives abundant life. He plainly says he is life, He is the source of life, the author of life. He takes what was dead and breathes life into it. The prophet Ezekiel had this message from the Lord. He says, you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. My people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. More than once, Jesus performed miracles by raising dead people to life. He was giving everyone a clear message about who he is by showing his power over death itself. And three days after he was crucified, he himself rose to life. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus is life. He offers life to all who will come to him, life that overcomes the death. That consumes you. Life that overcomes the corrupt desires to feed your flesh with more fleshly things. Life that can overcome the wounds that others have inflicted on you and can heal the wounds that you've given to yourself. Life that will overcome every attack and every setback and every fear and will bring you face to face with the one who gave you life. Is that the kind of life you are experiencing? Or has your relationship with God fallen into routine, passionless, mindless, dead religion? If you're just trying not to die, you're, you're not really living. And here is how you could be today, right now, making a fresh start with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against such things. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Let's stand to our feet and pray this morning.